This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now today we're bringing you a special guest episode. We're actually going to be speaking to Daniel Gleason, the CEO of a company called Fertoz. Now today he's going to explore with us how the company recognised the growing demand for organic crop farming that requires a focus on providing an all-natural solution to boost soil nutrition. That's right, Felicity. So very much an ESG-focused type of episode that we're bringing to you here at Talk Money To Me. So Fertoz, if you haven't heard of this company, it's a leader in the production of sustainable fertilisers for the North American Australian market throughout the mining, the manufacturing, and then the sales of the fertiliser to the ag industry. Fertoz has a highly focused vision on the development of carbon sequentious projects that utilise both reforestation that you're going to hear a lot about in this episode, and then also they tap into their agricultural practices and education to help support Quest more carbon into soils for the production of the carbon credits that they on sell. The code on the ASX, if you're interested, is FTZ, and the current market sits at about 39 million. So a small cap, this one. Yeah, in fact, it's actually more of a micro cap, and it's also a company that I don't know a lot about. So I'm really looking forward to this chat with Daniel. What you'll hear in today's episode is basically the team at Fertoz have a great goal right, to provide organic, regenerative and conventional farming operations with reliable access to direct application rock phosphate fertilisers that are much better for the environment. All right, so before we get into our interview... Just a reminder, guys, our chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered advisors at Shore and Partners. Please note, as always, if you tune into our podcast, you'd be sick of hearing this. The podcast and the content discussed is not personal advice and nor is it a financial product. And as always, you should go out to seek your own professional advice before you make your investment decisions. Now, all the facts and data based on today's conversation is known at the time of recording being the 28th of February, 2023. Correct. So it, we want to reiterate that again. It's based on facts known at the time of recording. So welcome, Daniel, to Talk Money to Me. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me here. We're super excited, Daniel, to be chatting to you more about the space in general. And I guess to start us off with the conversation, we want to understand more about you, yourself and Furzoz. You know, can you give us more background on what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, um, I joined the organisation 10 months ago, um, back in April of 2022. And prior to that, I'd spent all of my career, the last 20 years working in agriculture. Um, It was originally around vegetable seeds, plant breeding, which began in Australia and ultimately took me to the US in California where I was working in marketing. And that ultimately took me to Asia where I took over as the head of Asia. 
And this was all within a, a French company, a farmer cooperative called Limagrain Group, um, which is the largest vegetable seed company in the world and the fourth largest seed company in the world. And ultimately that uh, experience in Asia was a, a very interesting one, but with uh, two young children and a wife, um, the heat, the humidity and the pollution became a little bit of a challenge. And ultimately I took a job as the global head of marketing for Syngenta, which is the, one of the largest chemical and seed companies in the world based here in Chicago. So it brought me back to the US and as enjoyable as that was for the three-year period, it certainly uh, certainly reiterated my angst to, to take on something more challenging in a sense, more of a, a building and development uh, role rather than a, a management role, I'll say. And so when the opportunity came along uh, with Fertoz, which was introduced to me by some uh, Stuart Richardson and, and Nathan Ryan, really I, I stepped back and looked at the the dynamics of Fertoz and what it was focused on, um, which was ultimately fertilizer and and carbon sequestration and and where the market dynamics were at and, and decided to take the plunge into Fertoz, yeah, 10 months ago and um, haven't looked back since and certainly been a, a very enjoyable but uh, frenetic ride, I'll say, within the organisation. Yeah, I bet. So, I mean, Fertos is essentially a, a micro cap stock, right? So it's about a 39 mil market cap, um, which is really interesting. So it's probably a company that a lot of our listeners haven't heard of. So from what we know, Fertos has two divisions. So you've got the organic phosphate fertiliser and the carbon capture projections. Can you go into a little bit more detail on how these are both focused on sustainable land management and actually explain what are each of these, I guess, divisions? So the, the fertiliser business started back in 2013, and that was based around the acquisition of some rock phosphate tenements in Canada, so in British Columbia and Alberta. And fundamentally, what uh, Fertoz had been able to do was to secure very high-grade rock phosphate, uh, which is above 20% total P, phosphorus, and low in heavy metals. And the low in heavy metals is what is allowing us to, to classify it as organic and to be certified as organic. And so we were able to secure those tenements in Canada and subsequently, we also took on two marketing agreements, one in Montana in the US and another one in Mexico, which gave us a, a very good supply of rock phosphate uh, across North America. And fundamentally, rock phosphate is the base product for creating what is termed MAP and DAP, the synthetic fertilizers of phosphorus. And phosphorus is one of the three key elements used in, in growing most products that we eat. Um, there's nitrogen, there's phosphorus, and there's potassium. So we're one of the base suppliers of phosphorus. The, the difference, I'd say, on that aspect is that unlike the MAP and the DAP, which is synthetically made through two different processes, but um, a lot of energy and a lot of money goes into making that, we fundamentally mine the rock phosphate and crush it down to a fine powder and make it available as a raw product direct to the farmers. And I can go into more details about that, but the key being MAP and DAP retails, and I'll use US prices in this instance, for somewhere between $800 to $1,000 in the last 24 months. Our product is more in the $200 to $300 category, um, so far more cost effective in many senses. But the, the difference between ours and the chemical one is that ours takes 
between 12 to 24 months to release all of that phosphorus to the plant. The soluble fertilizer will release nearly all of it in three months. So there's the benefits and then there's also the drawbacks of that situation. The drawbacks for the general environment is that so much of that gets lost, the synthetic fertilizer, because the plant can't uptake all of that release of phosphorus in three months and it ultimately ends up in waterways and pollutes the waterways through algal blooms or it simply gets locked up in the soil and and you'll even hear from many leading agronomists and also the synthetic companies themselves that 50 to 70 percent of that phosphate that gets applied to the soil is lost so we've really got a a beneficial fertilizer that we're naturally mining we're not adding any chemicals so that's it's very low in salt which unlike synthetic fertilizers is very high in salts which is not great for the soil and it's bringing a lot of microbes and biological matter to the soil which also helps for soil health which is clearly a big focus in the last two to three years I would say. Can I just ask a question just quickly on that so you mentioned earlier that the price range is anywhere from 800 to a thousand is it a volatile commodity? Like how does it work on the pricing side and what do you think the outlook will be in five years' time, for example? Yeah, what's the margins? <laughs> well, the, the margins is for us is anywhere up to 50%. Um, it depends on a lot of things because of how we're mining today. We're still at a small scale, I would say. Once we get to a larger scale, then obviously the cost of goods come down based just on, on volume. But it's a good question around the volatility of the market. Obviously, with uh, the current climate, um, many people look towards Russia as having the biggest impact on fertiliser, which it has to a, a very large extent on nitrogen, also phosphorus. But we also have the challenge of uh, China's probably the largest, is the largest marketer of phosphate um, in terms of trading. And they stopped all trading of phosphate out of the country for two primary reasons. One, they need it to feed their own population. Number two, they also need it to make lithium iron phosphate batteries. So since they've stopped exporting, since Russia and Belarus, two other major providers have clearly been at conflict, the price has gone dramatically higher to a thousand. So there's no doubt it's going to come down. But my perspective is, yes, it'll come down, but probably to the $600 a ton mark US versus that $1,900 that we've been seeing. So there's always going to be a, a cost associated with manufacturing this product. And the other big reason for that for the North American market, 70% of the world's rock phosphate is in Morocco, in North Africa. So if clearly just the fundamentals of getting that to North America, then it's either processed in, in the Middle East using a lot of energy or it's using a, a process in the US, which is fundamentally not ideal for the environment either. So we're going to continue to see high fertilizer prices for the longer term, but probably not what we've seen to the limit to, to the extent of the last 12 months. Okay, that makes sense. So there's been, I guess, a lot of catalysts um, for fertilizer. Now, in regards to the carbon capture projection, can you tell us a little bit more about that division? Yes, yeah, so that division, it was really a, a thought process that eventuated from we're in the role of providing sustainable regenerative inputs for the soil health in agriculture. That clearly led to an opportunity of carbon in soil in agriculture. And by that, what we mean is there's been a lot of focus on what can growers do differently to sequester more 
carbon into the soil and to store it there. And to store it there is also one of the critical aspects. And because of our connection to organic sustainable fertilizers and also the experience of the team within Fertos, we had an opportunity in Canada uh, where many of our staff are based to begin working with growers uh, to help them develop practices and protocols that have been approved for carbon capture and for trading of carbon credits. So we've been working on that uh, phase, I would say, and, and we're still working through that. But what I guess triggered the next step into reforestation was when you look to carbon in agriculture, different practices will help us to sequester different volumes of carbon per acre or per hectare, how we want to look at it. That can vary in agriculture between 0.03, as low as 0.03 up to 0 0.3, 0 0.4, depending on the practice of CO2 tonnes per hectare. Reforestation, it's variable, but it goes up to as much as 25 to 28 tonnes per hectare. So you can see that on the scale of CO2 sequestered in the soil and in the trees is dramatically higher in reforestation. And so that led us into where we are today, which is a very heavy focus on reforestation in Southeast Asia. Do you see reforestation taking a longer multitude um, and time horizon, I should say, um, than what originally was forecast? Like what's, what's the environmentalist kind of thought on that? Is it something, is it a task that we're never going to achieve? No, I wouldn't say that. I'd say there's so much focus as an emphasis around reforestation and that's fundamentally because of the multitude of benefits that it brings, the ability to scale up and also simply the fact that we have so much land to reforest because of all the degradation we've done to it. So you have, you have the land and the environment there, you have the willingness of many, many industry players and many governments and many people in general and you also now have a platform under which people can undertake such a process and we all know that if there's also a dollar to be made people will do it there's all going to be a dollar to invest and so people will do it so i think it's really still in its infancy in many regards there'll always be different practices and approaches that may not necessarily be ideal and people try to skirt the edges of some of those and that tends to pull everything back. So it's sometimes two steps forward, one step back. And I think what I'm trying to say here is, if you look at reforestation as an example, there's been a lot of negative press on abatement. And abatement is really around, well, let's go and put a, a fence around this forest. And because we put a fence around it and said, we're never gonna cut it down, we should be giving away carbon credits for it. That's very much prone to, I'd say, not the best practices at times. It is a legitimate approach in certain cases, but it's being abused in other cases. And that's where a lot of the attention and focus has been. And that's something that from day one, when I joined Fertos, but it's also day one from the board, which was let's focus on reforestation. That's something where you're clearly taking degraded land where there's nothing much growing on it and replanting a, a forest that you can see, you can touch, you can feel, and you can measure and it's permanent. So that's where we're focusing our energies. And I think that's also where 
the premium will be paid for carbon credits of those types of projects because they're less prone to abuse, I'll say in some ways, and also because of the number of benefits from a social flora and fauna aspect is is huge if it's executed correctly. Yeah, that's awesome to hear because, you know, we see a lot on the news about greenwashing, green sheen. I guess that could kind of fall in that category. So it's Correct. really good to see that you guys are really doing the opposite to that. Correct. I mean, we've focused on that particular approach because the current regulations and the current structure around the various projects are not always watertight. They're not always well understood and and nothing's perfect when you're developing something new like we have been globally in carbon credit projects. But our feeling today is that reforestation has the clearest direction. It has the the clearest benefits. And to us, it's an opportunity to de-risk the project as much as possible by following all the fundamentals of what does a rainforest look like? How should it behave? How should it function? And so we think that's the the wisest and smartest approach. And we also think it's it's economically one of the best approaches as well. Well, we applaud you for that. I think it's a fantastic initiative. And I just want to go back to an earlier comment because you explained that um, Fertos essentially mines organic rock um, phosphate from deposit in Alberta and British Columbia of Canada to then on-sell organic certified products, you know, to really improve the soil health as you educated us on you don't want to have too much salt the right amount right so we'd love to get more detail on the new jv with fertify which essentially what we understand but we want to hear it straight from your mouth in terms of what they do it's a fertilized pellet manufacturing capacity in the u.s so how's that all going what's the update there that's tracking really well um it was it was a brainchild of a business partner called XL Industries who were in the in the market for spreading chicken litter with across farmers' fields and basically came to the conclusion that he was providing a source of nitrogen, but he was missing the phosphorus and the potassium. There's also an issue of spreading litter in that you're hauling a lot of water within that compost and and hauling water with today's diesel prices is not environmentally friendly or economical. And so the concept of the pelleting plant is to take the chicken litter, which is a source of nitrogen, our rock phosphate is a source of phosphorus, and we're also sourcing organic uh, sulfate of potash, which is the potassium. And so what we've been able to do is to create an what we call an all-encompassing NPK. That's what most growers are utilising and purchasing is a NPK product. And by having it in one pellet, it allows us to store it much easily. It allows us to spread it easily across the fields, much more cost-effective in terms of that application. And the grower then doesn't have to make as many passes through the field to spread separate nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. They're spreading it all at once. And in addition to that, what it brings is a lot of organic matter, mainly from the chicken litter, but also from the phosphate, because the organic matter in the soil is one of the key problems for growers as they grow crops year on year on year, and they're not replenishing it with enough organic matter for for what soil health should look like. So that project's it's been in the works for some time now. Building a pelleting plant in the current environment and sourcing steel and equipment has not been an easy task. Hence, we expect to have that operating at the end of this month, which is three days from now. It's it's still 30 to 45 days behind schedule, but 
the positive aspect of all of this has been the demand from growers once they've learned about this product. So we're, we're currently, as we start to fire up the equipment, we know that we're gonna be at capacity for the first six months because of the demand and the orders that we've already taken. So positive on one side that the demand is so strong, frustrating that we're already at capacity in the first six months. But once we have some downtime in the winter and, and late fall, it allows us to build more inventory to really increase that. But we also know that once we've got it out into the market, once we've sold it, collected the money, we'll probably very likely turn to, to manufacturing another one or two of those pelleting plants. Um, to scale up the organisation and deliver the volumes that the market's requiring. So it's an exciting step. And um, yeah, we've, we're happy to have the support of the customers around us. That's fantastic to hear. And I just want to ask a follow-up just quickly on that. Have you done any marketing on, on this? And I guess, is there a key area in the US that you're focusing on for this demand? Marketing's a, it's a broad word. Yes, we're doing marketing to the level that I'm probably used to and like to, would like to get to. Um, it's not as significant, but it's also, we're very practical. We know that we're using websites. We're using a lot of SMS messaging. We're using a lot of digital technology that's relevant to the growers today because we are a very small sales organization relative. Um, but because we're targeting, the key is to really target very close to our phosphate mine and close to the fertifying plant. Um, logistics is the real killer today for any organization. And I won't say in North America, I'll say globally. Um, so we're really focused close to home. Fortunately for us, a lot of the alfalfa grown in the US is grown in Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, which is exactly where we're based. And alfalfa likes a very slow release phosphorus, which is what we offer. You don't want to put a soluble phosphorus on the ground because the crop doesn't take it up as fast as it's released. So a lot of the alfalfa growers are very impressed with what we've created. And, and that's really a, a focus of our markets today. So really, you know, there's a strong order book for the year ahead. Um, we know you have inventory of 21,000 tonnes of phosphate with a retail value of Australian 6.1 million. Um, you're also aiming to build a supply of more than 50,000 tonnes to meet growing demand in 2023, uh, which you kind of discussed earlier. So I guess we want to kind of knuckle down. Why is the demand so strong? You know, what is the demand outlook? From what I'm hearing, this is really something that, you know, most farmers need. It's essentially, um, you know, a staple, really. No, it's a really good question. I think the demand is growing in two parts. I'll say it's clearly driven initially by cost for many of the growers. For our organic growers, it's fundamentally because it's organic. But I think something that's really important to understand is why is it growing so quickly? It's really growing from not a lot, to be honest, to growing into something. And that comes down to the lack of information and education that we've been able to provide the growers around the availability of rock phosphate. And that's partly due to the fact is rock phosphate historically had not the best reputation because it was very slow to release to plants up to five years. And so growers would spread it they wouldn't see a, an impact on their crops. And so they lost interest into it. So two of the things, or three of the things that we've really done is we now grind it down to a very fine mesh, 100 mesh, 250 mesh. It's like talcum powder in some instances. What that does 
is increases the surface area in the fields for the water and for the microbes to break it down. So now you're breaking down a very, very fine product and you're getting the release much faster. We also add sulfur to that, which is a, a plant requirement, but it also helps to break the rock phosphate down. So what we're providing nowadays is a product that's delivering the nutrients within a 12 to 24 month period, which growers are much more accepting of. And we've also targeted the slower growing crops like grasses, perennials, fixed plantations. So we're being much more targeted about the product. But there is no doubt with any grower, organic, regenerative, sustainable, the first question you will get is, what's your price? And because we're so cost effective, and because we're very well located in North America, the only other fertilizer plant anywhere near us is Simplot. And that's a commercial conventional fertilizer manufacturer. So there is a real challenge for Western North America from a fertilizer perspective. 95% of fertilizer comes in from the East Coast, and then you have to transport it all the way across to the West Coast. So we're very strategically located from a fertilizer position. It gives us a great cost benefit ratio. We're now really improving the product to make it more viable and more interesting from a grower's perspective. And lastly, we're getting out there and creating more of an understanding around what it is we're providing, where it's coming from, what's the cost and what are the benefits. And unfortunately, so many of the growers have moved to synthetic fertilizers over the last 50 to 60 years. We're now trying to bring them a few steps back around to, we are supplying you with the fundamentals of what you're already buying, which is MAP or DAP. We're providing the, the, the raw input and we've helped to speed up the process. So that education is getting out there. The growers are understanding it. There's other manufacturers that buy from us to value add the product and they understand it. Also to the fact, very few companies provide rock phosphate into the market. We have almost no competition. Now there's companies there, but their total P is much lower or they're not organically certified um, or they're running smaller mines. But at the end of the day, I. I I'm not worried about competition. I look for it because they're helping to spread the same message that we're spreading and it helps all of us. Absolutely. We love that, that there's not a lot of competition there for you, which is really good to hear. So essentially, um, your lower cost and you know, your organic sustainable, which you'd automatically assume organic sustainable is higher cost. Now we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to be diving into Ferdoz's carbon credit division and financial outlook of the company. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we're back. So Daniel, here at Talk Money To Me, we love to talk about the financials. So essentially, this is the part of the episode we want to talk money, right? Now, we know focusing on your carbon divisions, you've spoken a lot about um, land restoration and the amazing, you know, sustainable impact you can have there, which comes at a premium, I would argue, like you were saying, for your carbon credit. So I would love to know more about the carbon credit system procedure, how it works, the pricing, the margin, and, you know, how exactly do you see that margin for you guys going forward? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting dynamic and I sometimes make the assumption that uh, everyone understands it because we've been so ingrained in it the last uh, 10 months myself. But if I take an example of reforestation and work through the process there, but fundamentally what we're doing is by way of securing and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere through the trees that we're planting, that carbon is being stored either in the trees or in the soil and there's been a verification and a way for measuring that through independent companies that allows us to say we have sequestered X amount of tonnes of carbon over the course of 12 months. Those carbon credits, once they're verified and they've been audited, we can then take those to the carbon registry and start trading them on the open market through the voluntary carbon market. Now, there's a number of different platforms for where you can trade them, but fundamentally, you know, there's many options in Europe, US, Australia, Singapore. And so we take those carbon credits and we we put them onto the marketplace where there's any number of buyers looking for a certain number of carbon credits, but more importantly, they're looking for a certain quality of carbon credits. And that's where, as I mentioned before, it's really fundamental to us that the reforestation is a nature-based um, high-value carbon credit where we can ask for a premium price. Now, in the instance of what we're doing at Fertoz, our reforestation project will be done in conjunction with a third party, a funding partner, who we're currently working with. To reforest our targeted 50,000 hectares is somewhere between 35 and $40 million dollars to reforest that plantation, or that rainforest, I should say, because it's clearly not a plantation. The, the fundamentals around that are, we can estimate up to 25 tonnes per hectare, and we then have to take a, a view as to what these carbon credits will be worth as a premium and over time. Any carbon project we do in reforestation is 25 years, and we would expect that a 50,000 hectare project in Southeast Asia, with the view of what we believe the credits will be worth is is a half billion dollar project over the course of those 25 years. So you're looking at, at about 20 million US dollars uh, approximately per year for a 25 year period. One thing that people have to understand is that it will take three years before the first carbon credit is generated. You don't just plant a tree and it sequesters a ton of carbon or 25 tons. It takes time to grow and develop that to tree. To store it up there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So the bigger the tree, the faster it grows, the more CO2 it's taking out of the atmosphere as it grows and, and goes through the photosynthesis. So we really hit a peak at... 15 years, depending on the tree species, of the amount of carbon they're taking in each year and is being sequestered. So 
we really take a conservative view to that half billion dollars. There's many things that can change and go wrong. There's many things that can change and make it look even better. But we're taking a really conservative view on the amount of tons, the price, the timelines, just because on paper, these things look very, very, very exciting. But in reality, there's obviously challenges and, and hard work that has to go into it to make it successful. So can I ask that on the challenge, what is what is the bottleneck that happens? What can go wrong? Well, the positives of Southeast Asia are you're in an environment which has high rainfall, great soil, generally good soil, high temperatures, humidity. So trees grow quickly, grasses grow quickly. So you've also got so many villages and communities there looking to gain be gainfully employed, to also participate in part of this. So you've got a very cost-effective planting and management approach. You've got high C2, CO2 sequestering rates. The challenge that you can run into is we're going to be working across many communities and many villages. And I don't care what country you're in or what culture you're in, getting a lot of people to agree on the same thing for a course of 25 years is not the easiest task, I would say. So we have to be very mindful that what we're creating has longevity. What we're doing is sharing in the the outcomes of these projects and ensuring that we have the support of the governments and the communities in that process. And that's something that we've been working diligently on. But you can never say anything's 100% perfect and going to be 100% right, but that's what we're working towards. And, and that's where I would say the challenges exist is bringing a lot of people together from a lot of communities, government, local, NGOs, et cetera, to make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I mean, that still sounds very exciting though. So in relation to a timeline, are you saying probably three to five years before this is all kind of up and running? We would, we've been working on it for this for some time now. We would like to have come to a conclusion with the funding partner. And the funding partner is also already requiring to purchase 100% of those carbon credits. So we have no issues in selling them. They need to take them and they want them for their own business. We would hope to be planting towards the end of 2023. And so if we're planting at the end of 2023, it's 2026 until those first carbon credits are going to roll in. So investors have to take a long-term view to this, just like they do in timber plantations this is not a, a short-term investment strategy to be in reforestation and carbon credits. It's certainly for the, the longer term. Yeah, definitely. So like a six, seven plus, you know, 10, 20 year play really here. Yes. Um, now, so we know that you are helping producers accumulate carbon credits through the NERP protocol as approved and registered through CSA in May. Um, can you talk us through this process a little bit more and what it actually means for the reduction in emissions from the agriculture sector? Yes. So this comes back to what I call carbon in ag. And it's really about how do we bring approved protocols and practices to farmers who we can then support by engaging them, signing them up, supporting them through the administrative process of following the protocols, whether it's Vera, Gold Standard, there's a number of companies out there that have approved protocols. And because of our connection to growers, we've really worked closely in Canada, where it's a, I'll say a more mature market because they've been dealing in carbon protocols in agriculture for a number of years. So we're really working to facilitate through that with the growers by getting them into what we term no-till, 
which is where you don't dig up the soil and turn it upside down and release carbon, but you drill straight into the ground. NERP is really all about reducing your nitrogen inputs into the agricultural programs. And there's also cover cropping programs that are being developed. I think what's interesting, and we have to be realistic here, is that the protocols that exist today are very beneficial from a carbon sequestration standpoint. But what's really key to this is that those practices are already fundamental to a grower. So growers want to engage in these processes because it helps them with their crop, it helps them with their moisture in their soil, it helps them reduce their fertilizer bills, it helps to stop soil erosion. So it's really a win-win scenario here. We're trying to reward the growers through approved protocols for practices that already that they're already doing in Canada and that they're already contributing to a reduction in CO2. It also comes back to this very point that in the US and Australia, if you're already doing it, you can't be rewarded for it. In Canada, it's different. If you're doing it, you get rewarded no matter how long you've been doing it for. So that's also part of the reason we're focused on Canada is because the fundamentals in the US and Australia are still very challenging to see where growers would actually engage in such a, a program or a project that we're running. So that's a great kind of segue into our next question that we have for you in relation to why Canada is such a unique market for the carbon credit market. We understand it has a voluntary carbon market. So just winding back, where is the room for improvement in your opinion for the other market players in the carbon credit you know, platforms and registry? Is this something that we need the regulators to get involved to lift the standards everywhere? Yeah, I think there's definitely a role to be played by the regulators to, to find a more consistent approach. Um, fundamentally, what is happening in Australia and the US is it's just not cost effective in terms of the process. So the soil sampling and the soil measurements required in the US and Canada at the moment are very expensive and it doesn't justify the returns on investment for the growers. And for, I guess, as I just mentioned, the growers that are already following these protocols, not, not from a legal basis, but they're already engaging in reducing fertilizer and no tilling, they're not being rewarded in the US or Australia. So there's no reason for them to engage in a carbon protocol because they won't receive money from it. So the goalposts do continue to change. And I have to say, they, they still continue to change in Canada. So it's not the easiest space to be working in today because there isn't a level of governance over it. It's very much individualized country by country and even some cases in the US state by state. And so with a lack of consistency, then there's a real lack of, there's a lot of unknowns about what the future holds. So the benefit for us is we may or may not see a long-term play in this space, but fundamentally it's already allowing us to sell a lot more fertilizer into the market because we're engaging with regenerative sustainable growers. But more importantly, it's opened the doors for us with companies like General Mills, Oatly, Cargill, these huge food manufacturers who are looking for the most sustainable approach to growing crops. So we bring sustainable fertilizer, we bring sustainable growing practices, and we've got some other ideas around that. We're bringing more of a a full package to some of these larger organizations, but there's still work to be done 
by governments, by authorities, by growers, by companies such as ourselves, because it is a moving target at the moment that I think people are yet to, to settle on a, a clear conclusion. And I won't say that Fertoz has a clear conclusion on it yet either, other than we get the side benefits of fertiliser, fertiliser sales. So it's not like we're putting all of our eggs in one basket, hoping we have to get a return from that specific approach. No, absolutely. But I mean, long term, it's the way that all companies need to go, right? So at least you do have that aspect of the business. Yes. Um, you know, everyone is working towards climate change and making the world a better place. So it's really nice to see that. Now, we do have a really, really important question, Daniel. Final question is coffee, tea or tequila? Well, it's hard to say now that I live in America. I guess I have to make my own coffee. <laughs> oh, that's so true. It is very that's true. That's true. So um, I'll say coffee. Coffee. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. What a great and interesting episode. Great. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate the opportunity. Now that's a wrap. Now, before we sign off, please remember again, although Felicity and I are advisors at Shoring Partners, as always, our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, go out and seek your own professional financial advice before you make your investment and financial decisions. Just to finalise again, the interview is based on the facts note at the time which is the 28th of February. Yes, and make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Remember, if you do have any questions or you want to talk to us about anything, or even if you want to look at your own portfolio, send us an email at tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.